Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people who are helping autistic adults and teens become more successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Living in this pandemic, having accessibility to the internet is more important than ever. But too often, websites limit those opportunities for autistic and disabled folks. That's why I'm so glad Kelly Braun Johnson returns to Autism Stories to have a discussion about this and how she can help you to make your website more accessible. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me again. So, so glad to have you return. And I, I really wanted you to return because recently I've been looking at ways for the Autism Personal Coach website to be much more accessible. And the thought came to my mind, I really need to speak with Kelly and learn from her. So I wanted to start out by a statistic I read recently that 50%, 56% of organizations still don't routinely test their digital products with disabled people to evaluate accessibility and usability. Why the heck do you think that number is so high? It is. It is very high, isn't it? Um, I, I really think that a lot of people don't have a really good concept of what web accessibility means. And so a lot of uh, businesses will think, oh, yeah, we're accessible. Or, you know, we've got a website. It's good. Or the guy who programmed it told me it was accessible. But they don't really have a good understanding of what that means and who that's going to serve. So it's kind of the idea that, you know, a lot of times you'll call a place, a physical company, and you'll say, hey, are your bathrooms accessible? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, well, uh, we've got a ramp to come in. Everything's fine. And then the person gets there and they realize the bathroom's downstairs or something like that. Uh, and I think it's the same with websites where they kind of, a lot of people feel they're like, oh, I think it's okay. But without really understanding what people actually need uh, to be able to access the website, that's why I guess they don't, they don't really go out of their way to have real users uh, test their products or test their website. When I look at websites, I often think about things and how it affects people from a sensory perspective, whether it's color, shape, size, or sound. What adjustments can be made in regard to those things? I think it's really important that people remember, um, or, or at least learn, to start to learn that we shouldn't have uh, things auto-playing or flashing at us. And that's a health issue, uh, especially for people with uh, any sort of epilepsy or seizure disorder. So that's not accessible. If you have flashing lights that could possibly cause a seizure, that's really not something that should be on your site. And having music play automatically it can also be very disturbing for people. And if they're not sure where to go or how to turn it off, that's, mm -hmm. that's really, it's just not going to be a good experience for them. They're not going to want to spend a lot of time in your site. And so if they were searching for services or product, they're probably not going to be able to buy. They're not going to want to purchase from you. 
Whenever I go to a website and there's automatically music playing, I'm like, no, please stop. You know, it's really 90s. Um, and unfortunately, there's still some people doing that. It used to be a cool thing. But yeah, that's, that's, that's one big issue. I think more people are becoming more aware. There's also the issue of color contrast and, and people with color blindness. If the colors are too similar, and let's say you have a pie chart, it's all going to look like one round pie. They're not going to be able to figure out, you know, what parts are important information for them to know. So it's really about thinking outside the box and starting to think more about who's using your site and if they're going to be able to get the best experience out of it. What about background colors? Should those be differentiated at all? And how, how does that play into accessibility? Yeah. So so if people, you know, of course you can still have color on your site. That's, I'm not saying don't get creative, but it's about making those colors accessible. And there are guides online uh, about which colors are most color blindness friendly. In addition, there should be an option for people to be able to change the color contrast of the site if they want. Um, and that can be coded in. And because some people will be better with a dark background on light text or light text on dark background. And so if your site is programmed in such a way that people can flip those uh, in order that they can see it better, that that's really a, a wonderful feature that helps a lot of people. Now, one annoying thing to me about websites, especially if you're having to fill out a form, is that you may only get a certain amount of time on a page before it might time out. Should websites just eliminate that, or are there things that can be done to give those that need it additional processing time? They can absolutely uh, adjust the time limit if that's important. And I think we also just need to ask the question, what is the rush for exactly? What are we doing the time limit for? <laughs> and and understand, well, because it just sometimes when, uh, for instance, my favorite airlines, when you're trying to buy a ticket, will time you out when you're doing a search. And I can kind of understand that, but it can be frustrating if you were comparing different flights or different prices. But there are other times when there are timers on filling out forms that I don't really know what the use of that was or, or what the idea was when that was created. And in those cases, usually they can be adjusted or removed completely. So uh, it's important to consider what you're adding to your website and who is going to benefit. What about animation on websites that can be overwhelming to some? Like you were talking about that can cause seizures, potentially. How should organizations be thinking in terms about using these on websites? Really, nothing should be auto-play. And even to the point of uh, what they call those carousels, where you have one image and a little bit of text, and then it flips to the next one. Uh, a lot of the times, you don't get a chance to read what was on it before it flips. And that can be very confusing and, and very distracting, especially if it's something that keeps playing on the top, let's say, and you scroll down to read at the bottom. But this, you can still see this animation kind of playing, and it can be very distracting for people with ADHD or just trying to focus on, on the text and what you're trying to do. So really, they should not have auto anything. In thinking about website accessibility, what do you think are some of the key principles in determining how accessible accessible a website truly is? Number one, if somebody wants to start doing testing on their own, the number one test is to throw away your mouse. 
<laughs> if your website can function and, and you can navigate the website without using your mouse, you should only be able to use your keyboard. And, and that also includes not using a touchpad. You have to be able to use the site with just a keyboard. Um, and if you can, that is your one of your basic most important tests. The other way you can do too, you can also uh, enable screen reading. Most laptops uh, and even phones have an accessible section where you can enable screen readers and, and text-to-speech. And if you find that the text or the, the way that it, it's navigating through the information is jumping around or you're not getting all the information that you want somebody to capture, then you start to realize that you're going to have to restructure your website in order to make it more accessible. How, how do you go about in assisting organizations that want to make their website more accessible? So I go and I do a website audit using the established guidelines. So we have two sets of standards. Well, they're, they're pretty much the same in the end, but uh, there's the W3C standard, which was established in 1994, and that is an international community. Uh, they, it's a member organizations that get together and, and make these standards. And actually, what's very interesting about that, you know, it was established in 1994 when websites were pretty simple. And since then, companies have kind of almost forgotten about it or, or stopped paying a lot of attention. And websites have actually become less accessible uh, since 2011. So we had this big rush of lots of creation, lots of website. Everybody was creating a website and nobody's making them accessible anymore. Uh, the other standard that is actually covered by the ADA is the WCAG 2.0 and 2.1. These are technical standards. You can, so in the States, it's you know, like I said, it's covered by the ADA, so you can technically have a lawsuit filed if your website is not WCAG compliant. And that uh, are those basically the standards that I use to audit a site and uh, start giving people a report for their accessibility and what they can do to change. And what are some of the, there's a lot of different things that when you look at those standards that come into play, what are some of those things that might pop up that, that when creating a website, people might not even think about? Yeah, I'd say really the structure of the website is, is really super important. And as well as anytime you have some sort of link or another part of the menu, it should be well like, and clearly labeled because a text reader or screen reader is going to go through and read everything that's there. And if the link just says click here, that doesn't give anybody information about what that link is and why they should want to click there. So there's, there's a lot of little details in a sense, but the structure is really important. Just like I said, especially for screen readers to go through in a logical order and read information um, so that it's not confusing for the person who is listening to it. And I also want to be really clear that it's not just people who are blinded with low vision who are using screen readers. It's people who have any sort of attention issue. Sometimes somebody has suffered a stroke and they're just not able to read as well or focus as well as they used to before. Dyslexic people might use a screen reader instead of trying to spend their time reading the text. Um, there's just a lot of different uh, reasons that somebody would choose to do that. And when we look at the population, we know that 25% of people have a disability. So these are clients 
or potential clients that uh, you need to serve and it's best to serve them well in the way that they are able to access your site and actually make a purchase through that site. And I'll just add in one more thing. Uh, I've learned recently that a lot of blind people, when they make a purchase, when they order online, this is, you know, they've been having to order online more now because of the pandemic lockdown. A lot of the times they're guessing. Amazon's not really a very user-friendly site. It's not that accessible. And they rely heavily on reading a description. And we know descriptions or product descriptions are not always the best. Mm-hmm. And a lot of blind people are actually ordering things, hoping that they got the right thing. And when it arrives, they, they really hope it's exactly what they wanted. So I, I think it's really important that we need to you know, consider these needs and again, making sure that if, if you want your product to be sold and get into the right hands, that it's easy for them to make sure that this is the right thing that they wanted. Now, living in a pandemic world right now, remote options such as Zoom and GoToMeeting, things like that are being used so much more. In circumstances such as those, there are things that can be done in, to ensure that video conferencing platforms um, itself are compatible with various forms of assistive technology. What are some of those things that can be used in those situations? You know, I'm mildly hard of hearing in my right ear, so I really appreciate live uh, uh, transcription, yes, live transcription or closed captioning, even if it's auto captioning. Um, Google Meet now that came out recently, uh, they have it enabled automatically, which I think is fantastic. Uh, and it's free to use. Zoom does have the option of auto uh, transcription. It goes a little slow, but they also have options for live uh, transcriptioners to be part of your uh, your meeting or webinar, and for that uh, that information to end up right on your screen right away, which I think is great. That's usually through a third party, but it's still fantastic that that's at least enabled. And for anybody that uses ASL or, or any sign language, I know that I always appreciate uh, seeing meetings that have a, a simultaneous interpretation available. Um, even though my ASL is not great, I'm, I'm kind of still mid-beginner level. But having it there as, a, as a, an extra, it will help uh, enhance my comprehension, the, you know, the, the combination of hearing, seeing, reading at the same time. For me, I I just find that really useful. This is autism stories, and I know that due to processing and hearing challenges, this isn't a platform that is necessarily accessible to everyone. So I've I've transcribed a few of of the podcasts that, that we've done, but it's really been challenging in that the transcription isn't always that accurate, and then I have to go back and spend a lot of time editing it, more time than I would like to. So do you have any suggestions for myself and for all other podcasts out there about how to make podcasts more accessible? Yeah, I think there's a few options that aren't too, um, they're not too costly. You can use a transcription service. There's there's lots of different transcription services out there that will listen. It's a human listening to your voice and then transcribing. And those are usually the, the most accurate. They might still require some correction, but they're usually quite accurate and, and uh, they have a quick turnaround time. Your other option is to use the auto caption uh, options and then correct them more extensively. <laughs> Those ones, you know, you'll see all sorts of interesting things pop up. Uh, <laughs> but it's done by AI, done by a computer. So 
but it's still that at least gives you the the foundation to work from rather than starting from scratch because it, it is quite a, a talent to uh, to transcribe and to do that accurately for sure another aspect of web accessibility is social media and i know you're going to be doing a webinar soon uh, relating to this. So I'm wondering, are there features, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, that can make these accounts more accessible? Yeah, for sure. So some social platforms do have uh, some features ingrained into them, but you still have to enable them and use them correctly. A lot of people will use them incorrectly, and that's, that counts for our websites as well when they write image descriptions or alt text, things like that. Um, so that's one of the things I do cover in my workshop that's coming up. I, I teach you how to use them correctly and how to enable them. And when it is a social uh, platform that you want to use that does not have any features that are automatically enabled, I show people how uh, they can do it manually. It takes a bit more time. But it's still worth the effort. I, I've gotten such amazing feedback from people who, you know, they're like, oh, I really appreciate that you wrote an accurate image description. My husband's blind and he was able to enjoy this content with me at the same time. And that, that just means a lot. It, like, again, it's like opening your, your community and your, your services and your, and your social accounts to more people when they're able to enjoy it the same way as everyone else. And when is... When is your webinar and how can people go about accessing it? Uh, so the webinar will be July 8th uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern and it's going to be on Zoom and interactive so people can ask questions and I'm going to walk people uh, through each social platform. Um, my event is up on Eventbrite. It's called social, uh, so it's called WebEx, no, sorry. It's called Social Media Accessibility for Marketers. And uh, the Eventbrite link is in my Instagram bio. Um, and I've got it up on Facebook and a couple of other spots. And I'm advertising it regularly on LinkedIn. So if anybody finds me, they can find my event. Not a problem. And I'll share that in uh, the podcast description for, for this interview. Well, Kelly, it's always a pleasure, and I always learn something from you, so thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's great to be back, and uh, I'd be happy to come back again anytime, Doug. Thanks to everyone for listening, and a special thanks to Kelly for returning to Autism Stories. You can find more information about Kelly's upcoming webinar in the podcast description for this episode. Normally, this is the time when I talk about coaching services that we at Autism Personal Coach offer, but instead I wanted to focus on a new virtual group we are starting. We've seen the positive benefits that people receive when we've created groups to address a person's dual identities that are often marginalized. One of those identities for autistic people that often are marginalized is being Black, Indigenous, and or a person of color. We hope that you will join us at our first virtual meeting for Autism Personal Coaches Autistic BIPOC group. This group is for those 16 and older that are both autistic and either black indigenous and or a person of color. And it takes place on Friday, July 16th, 6 p.m. Eastern time. And the link to join that is in the podcast description for this episode. 
In next week's episode of Autism Stories, we'll, we will talk with Becky Parker about the benefits of dance to autistic people. Talk to you then.